It really is interesting if you stop and think about it just for a second. That some of the very first teachings and preachings that Jesus of Nazareth had to the world about the coming of the good news for humankind didn't sound like good news at all. And it is so incredibly important for us to understand the contrast between the world that Jesus is offering us versus a world that we are enslaved by. But to take advantage of that opportunity, we have to completely turn everything that we think is important as a human upside down. And it doesn't make sense. Every fiber of our being fights against it. That's why it's so important for us through, through our own study, through prayer, through corporate worship, through listening to podcasts like this, that we remind ourselves the seriousness of the situation. These decisions between the earth and heaven truly are decisions of life or death. Anyway, that's something to think about. Hey friend, I'll see you next week. Until then, be blessed. So uh, again, uh, with this Bible study series, we're in Matthew chapter 5, looking at something called the Sermon on the Mount. Within the Sermon on the Mount, there are these things called the Beatitudes. And if we remember uh, from our very first session that the word beatitude comes from the Latin uh, beatus, and that word means blessed. What, it, what does it mean to be blessed? And in week one, we talked about the significant difference that Jesus is talking about when he talks about how we're to live our lives and what can make us happy versus what can make us blessed. And we've learned already that based on looking at beatitude number one, that Jesus calls us to be poor in spirit. And that doesn't feel right compared to what we examine in the world. And this week, we're going to look at um, those who mourn again. Um, it's uh, an upside down idea. It's inconsistent with what the world thinks. But we have to remember, we're not talking about happy. We're talking about blessed, which is more like to have the approval of God. We said in week one, to be blessed is to have the applause of heaven. Okay? So just to refresh, and I'm just going to do this each time we look at each one of these, because it's really uh, not that long uh, portion of scripture. So I'm just going to read again the sermon, um, beginning with verse one, chapter five, gospel account according to Matthew, and seeing the multitudes, he went up into a mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came unto him, and he opened his mouth, and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Tonight, here's our beatitude number two. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. 
Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when men shall revile you and persecute you. So say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. And remember, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has lost its saltiness... Where shall it be salted? It's therefore good for nothing but to be cast out, trodden, underfoot. You're the light of the world, the city which is set on a hill which cannot be hid. Neither do men or women light a candle and put it under a bushel, but on a candlestick. And it gives light unto all that are in the house. Therefore, let your light shine before all, that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is heaven. Think not, Jesus says, think not that I've come to destroy the law or the prophets. I've not come to destroy, but to fulfill. Verily I say unto you, till the heaven and earth pass, one jot, one tittle shall in no way pass from the law till all be fulfilled. Whosoever therefore shall break one of these least commandments and shall teach people so, they shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But... Whoever shall do and teach them, the same shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say unto you that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you shall in no case, no way, enter into the kingdom of heaven. We're looking at verse 4 of that sermon tonight, chapter 5 of Matthew. The second beatitude, blessed are those that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Perhaps we could translate this, and it sounds paradoxical again. It sounds contradictory. But what really what's being said in everyday terms is happy are the unhappy. Happy are the sad. That's a paradox. It seems like absolute opposites. Someone who is mournful should be comforted, should be happy, should be joyful, should have satisfaction within them from being mournful, from being sad, from being downhearted. (laughs) It doesn't make sense. Someone defined a paradox as truth standing on its head, calling itself to attention. And that's exactly what this is. Jesus, in verse 4, is saying, approved, blessed, accepted with God are those who mourn, for they shall be happy, they shall be comforted, they shall be satisfied. Martin Luther The great reformer said mournfulness is like a rare herb. It's an endangered species. It's something we don't come across often in the days that we live in. Why is that? Well, first, if we look at uh, verse 3, we'll see, as we said the last time, all of these beatitudes actually relate one to another. And we're going to see as we go through each one of these that it has like a stacking effect as we read them. Verse 3 leads into verse 4, verse 4, leads into verse 5, and so on. So none of them on their own are exemplary. We must take all of them in. We must believe and practice them all for this to work. We must look for these in all areas of our lives. Verse 3, we saw last time, to be poor in spirit means to have humility about yourself and your abilities, to be humble. Because you've been humbled by a vision of your own sinfulness before God. It's knowledge 
Verse 3, Beatitude 1, if you like. Right? Verse 3 is intellectual. Right? It's a recognition. It's knowing your sin and coming to a realization of it. But verse 4, number 2, is emotional. It's the effect that takes place in our souls and our spirits when we do realize that we're sinners. When we have the intellectual knowledge, the emotional experience kicks in. And not only do we now know that we are a beggar before God, but we get, begin to feel like one as well. That's the difference. Number one, blessed are the poor in spirit, intellectual. Number two, blessed are they that mourn, emotional. And I think it cannot be overstated here what, uh, what devastating words uh, we find in the Sermon in the Mount. I, I want us to notice, remember, we talked about the Sermon on the Mount being very early on in Jesus' public ministry. You might say that these are some of the very first words that Jesus ever uttered in his public ministry here in the Sermon in the Mount. And the first words that Jesus the Messiah had to say was not peace, happiness, ease of life now because I'm here. These are not particularly comforting words. But as Jesus enters into this great sermon, which describes what the people of Israel need to do if they want to come back to God, we actually find that these are violent words. They're destructive words. They're words that when we hear them with the right set of ears should cut to the quick. A deal of a deathly blow to any form of our self-reliance, any form of self-righteousness. Anything that would say in us, myself and my hands I bring, and then to the cross I cling. I want us to see the devastating nature of these words. Because it's unbelievable to think that we, for as prideful as we are as human beings, that, that we cannot come to God by ourselves. That's why the world around us doesn't like, don't like these words. Because it means that we can't do anything to be saved. And people don't like that. To know it, like we find here in the first beatitude, right? Remember, blessed are the poor in spirit. To know it is one thing. That's where we find ourselves shifting here into an emotional response. Here for blessedness, right? Because we start to feel the reality that we can't on our own power, through our own righteousness, come before God. And the self in us, that prideful self needs to be destroyed. Because if there's anything of that us in us left... We can't fully get there. We just can't. We can't come to God for salvation based on our own worth. And all of the things that this world teaches us are right and acceptable and good and comforting. All of these things, God has to destroy them all. 
God has to. And again, right? What are our attitudes in the world today? We've seen over the past few weeks that the attitudes of the Lord, the philosophies, the doctrine that He is presenting here in His first real public sermon, right? We've talked about this every single week. That His idea of what it means to be a part of the kingdom of heaven is the absolute antithesis. It is the exact opposite of everything that human society believes it should be. And that's not just true about our sinful, wicked world of today. It was just as true in Jesus' time as it is today. right? Which means that this idea of self-gratifying sin is not some byproduct of the, of the modern age. It's a reality, unescapably, of our human nature. And it's true for each and every one of us. And that is, it's also true, again, that if we were to go out in the street today, with a microphone or a bullhorn or whatever, and we begin telling people, you really can find happiness if you choose to be unhappy. Right? No, it's a good thing when you mourn. Your mourning will be comforting to you. Again, they would lock you up. Because in the world today, that philosophy... That way of life doesn't seem to make sense. It doesn't seem to be logical. It doesn't fit into our way of life, our thought patterns, our system of reason and logic. See, we in our society today, especially our society, right? One of the things that's true is to be unhappy is really not in vogue. It's, It's not something that's looked upon, being unhappy. As a positive thing in your life. Because the world that we live in is still pleasure thyself. It's a society that wishes to bring everything, right? Have everything brought to us. That we might satisfy all of our fleshly lusts. And I don't mean just, you know, the physical stuff. I mean the food. Anything that we can feel like we can fill some sort of empty hole inside us. That God-sized hole that only God can fill. Right? Right. But we don't often recognize it because we are so convinced that having the good time is still the goal. As long as we have a good time, no matter whether it's sinful or not, no matter whether we break the law or not, as long as it gives you a thrill, As long as it gives you a buzz, it's okay. Moral, immoral humans today, people have no morals. Amoral people, right? Are building around themselves a structure to be appeased and to appease every maximum entertainment and amusement in an attempt to be to make life one big party, right? And is that not true? We see this kind of stuff 
all the time. We celebrate it in our culture. Is it not true that the next step, stage, goal every person strives to is the next high, the next thrill that they can achieve? Right? And if they can't find that high, what? and I don't mean, you know, just inebriation, whatever that thing is, and if they can't find it in their own personal lives, right, then they do often look to things like substances to bring falsely that high within their minds, to make them feel better. It's a sad society we live in, but to be mournful, to be unhappy, to be sad in our society today is to be a wet blanket. At any cost, the world will try and attempt to avoid unhappiness. And when the world should be and is meant to be crying because of our sinful nature, because of our separation from God, when we should be mourning that reality, instead we're laughing as a society figuratively. And when we ought to be laughing, sometimes we're crying, right? And I want to say this just before we dig a little bit deeper into the text here, um, because uh, I think that this is a part of it. And I'm, I'm as guilty of this as anybody is, but it seems like one of the things that I think um, distorts all of this is it seems like in our world today, everything has to be a joke. We've lost a certain gravity, a certain seriousness, right? And I don't, I'm not trying to be like the old man telling you to get off my lawn or nothing, but I have to also admit I'm a part of a generation that perpetuated this as well, right? And, and this, this non-seriousness about the reality of all of this and the dangers that exist when we don't take this advice is often the result of, the, of our lack of seriousness towards these ideals. And, and the truth is, it's not just something we see out in the society out there, but it's infiltrated the church as well, right? We see all the time, well, we, we, we all go to the same church, but you hear about churches that are always looking uh, to provide some sort of worship experience, some churches do it through lights, through fog machines, through, through loud music, right? And really, and there's nothing wrong with that style of worship except to say that if what you're doing is trying to elicit an emotional buzz, a feeling of happiness, right? Then that feels a bit authentic, inauthentic, sorry, to me. And I'm not trying to uh, push blame on anybody for that either because we Christians feel a pressure. This, this misbelief that uh, as a Christian, we're always supposed to be happy, right? If we're Christian, we're supposed to walk around with a perfect smile. We're always supposed to look the right way, have the right job, have the right kids, whatever, Right? Some Christians really do feel a pressure that comes with being a Christian because they think for some reason that they are a defender of the faith. 
leading many of our world today to not preach sin or guilt because it makes people in the pews feel uncomfortable. We don't want to feel uncomfortable. We don't want to feel unhappy. We don't want to mourn. We don't want to be sad. Tell us something that makes us happy. Tell us something that changes our emotions. Right? Let me tell you, what Jesus said, if you don't mourn for your sin and you're not poor in spirit, and if you don't feel sad, you'll never be saved. Because that's the reality of what he's saying. You'll never be saved. And that's not my judgment being cast upon you. Those are the words of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Specifically, why? Because in order to truly be saved, you must see your sin. And if that sin doesn't make you sad, right? Then you haven't fully seen your sin yet. You haven't seen your need for a savior. Neil Postman uh, has written a book and the title explains the whole book. It's called Amusing Ourselves to Death. Amusing Ourselves to Death. We laugh at the things that we should weep over often. And we weep at the things in our world we should laugh at. We're blinded by it. But immediately, like children who've had our candy bar taken away from us, whether it be our health, our wealth, whether it be our status, whatever it may be, we wail and we cry. But Jesus said, blessed are the more mournful, for they shall be comforted. And so to look at this word, mourn and mournfulness, uh, as always, I would really like to take a second. Um, before we talk about what it means to be mournful, I'd like to first talk about what it doesn't mean. Okay, we're going to look at what it isn't and then what it is. And then we're just going to put, then we're just going to simply put the phrase and they should be comforted at the end. <laughs> right? Mournfulness is not Christians being perpetually morose, downhearted, downtrodden, boring, depressing. Christians that trip over their own faces. Right? It's not self-pity. That's not what Jesus is talking about. First of all, this blessed mournfulness is not cheerlessness. Okay, Not cheerlessness. Uh, a famous author, a guy by the name of Robert Louis Stevenson, uh, he wrote this uh, one day sarcastically. He said, uh, I've been to church today and miraculously I'm not depressed. Now, why would he make a statement like that? Because, because of Christians that he's experienced in his life, he thought that to be a Christian meant to be depressed. You had to have a long face. You had to be a dull, boring, morbid right type of person to go to that same kind of boring house of worship. And the truth is, many of us, have experienced that ourselves, so can we blame him? It's a little girl walking in the country that, with her mother, and she pointed over at a horse and said, that horse must be Christian. Look at its long face. Sometimes we're like that. Not, not, now, that, uh, that is not, 
Sorry, that's not the mournfulness that Jesus is talking about. That is just being miserable. That's miserableness. In Proverbs chapter 17, verse 22, we have the wise words of Solomon, where he says this. He says, a joyful heart is good medicine, but a crushed spirit dries up bones. It's true that a laugh, right? Nothing wrong with a laugh in the right place. It's a time to laugh, a time to cry. There's nothing wrong with a smile on our faces. And if we're saved today and there's not a smile on our face, then something is probably missing. Oswald Sanders goes on to say, it's a warning for us all, that we have already in the church allowed too much that is good to be lost to the church. We've cast too many pearls before swine. And the church is a in a bad way when it banishes laughter from the sanctuary and instead leaves it to TVs, the nightclub, and the internet. We need to be happy, and mournfulness is not cheerfulness. <laughs> Sorry. Secondly, mourning neither, right, is mourning about the difficulties in our lives. This is, I think, uh, a, a curious and interesting spot for a lot of people uh, whenever they think about mourning and about looking at their own lives and the problems. But think about this, guys. The Bible never says that it's mourning in and of itself that's the blessed state. And mourning is not the mourning over the difficulties of life. It's not that either. Thirdly, nor is mourning in this context bereavement. Right? Mourning is bereavement, but not in this context. So what is it? Well, there are nine words, Greek words, used within the New Testament for this idea of mourning. All of them are used. There are nine words, and they're all used. Uh, but the word that is used here in 4, chapter 5, verse 4, is the strongest and most descriptive version of the word mourning. That, that can be used. Uh, this version of mourning is also found in Genesis 37, verse 34. Uh, it describes Jacob's sorrow and his mournfulness over his son Joseph, who had died. Remember, this is right at the point where his brothers had taken him and cast him into a pit, and then they had taken his beloved coat of many colors and then spattered blood on it and brought it back to the father to tell him, your beloved son, he's dead now. And it says that he mourned. And the word that's used there is the same word, and it's the most descriptive. It's the word that's used in Mark chapter 16, verse 10. When the, woman, when the women rather, who had been to the tomb after Jesus had rose from the dead, and they come back to the disciples, and they told them that he had risen, and they found them mourning and weeping, that they had lost their Savior, that, that's that same version of the word mourning. So it's not simply cheerlessness, not the difficulties of our lives, not bereavement. Bereavement is a natural sorrow, right? These other mournings that I'm talking about can be unnatural. They're deeper than they often ought to be. 
and we often cry in the face of things we should be laughing at, but I'm talking about a spiritual sorrow. Let me illustrate it by turning to Psalm 32, written by David. Psalm 32, and if we, let me go, start with verses of 3 to 5, we can see godly, spiritually sorrow. Um, Psalm 32, verses 3 to 5, this is the way you feel. It's kicked in our intellect and our emotions now. And when we keep silent, our bones wax old through groaning all day long. Scripture says, for when I keep silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all the day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Selah. I acknowledged my sin to you and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Selah. And the result is, you're comforted. The result, actually, in this instance, shows us, comes back to verses 1 and 2 of the psalm. Verse 1 and 2 say, Blessed is he or she whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the one unto whom the Lord does not credit iniquity, in whose spirit there is no guile. Right? And this is the case as many Christians now, uh, as well as people who aren't saved. This is, we must cease trying to rationalize our sin in our lives and call sin for what it is, sin. Admitting what it is and then letting the horrors, the desolation, the degradation of sin perpetrate right into our very soul. And then when we do, emotionally, we weep. We mourn over it. It was Thomas Cramner, the Archbishop of Canterbury, Cramner, during the English Reformation, uh, he wrote a prayer book in 1662, and he wrote the Holy Communion part to put into the lips of church people words to say as they broke bread. Was he exaggerating, you think, whenever he said, we acknowledge and bewail our manifold sins and wickedness. Right? Bewail our manifold sins and wickedness. That is mournfulness. Alan Redpath wrote a book on Nehemiah. I've referenced this book a ton in my Bible studies. Uh, that book's called The Making of a Man of God. And Redpath says, As I stand here this evening, I know I am capable of committing any sin under the sun. That is realizing how big of a sinner you are. And it was Paul, in his later years... But as he thought, contemplated what he was, that he could actually say about himself, I'm the chief among sinners. As believers, as unbelievers, do we see our sin? Do we see ourselves as we really are? That this is all we are but sinners. But often, and it's 
wrong to not make much of the grace of God, but at times we make a lot of the grace of God and we often make light of our own sinfulness before God. Let me point to you uh, back to our friend Jesus here. Uh, Jesus is also known um, in a reference to Hebrew scripture as the man of sorrows. And it's interesting how we read Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the gospel record. Uh, that it's not recorded. I'm sure it happened. But it's, not rec- it's never recorded of Jesus laughing or smiling. It's interesting. Don't get me wrong. Again, I'm not saying that Jesus didn't laugh or smile. Right? I'm not saying he couldn't laugh or smile. But why do the gospel recorders, why do the Holy Spirit that brings that truth to us not bring that thought to us simply because i think the holy spirit wants us jesus to see jesus described as this man of sorrows he was hungry we know this he was tired he's going to bear the sins of the whole world he heard in his ears daily blasphemy profanity He sought sinfulness through his own eyes. The one who could not look upon iniquity, he saw all of those things in his very midst. He was thirsty, he was weeping, he was poor, he was angry, he was hungry, but chiefly, he mourned. Chiefly, Jesus mourned because of our sin. He mourned because... Of a people living in a sinful, lost world. We see that in the 23rd chapter of the gospel account according to Luke. Let me just go there real quickly. Remember the women are weeping for him. They're weeping. They, they, they're weeping for the crucified Savior. Verse 28 of Luke 32. But Jesus, turning unto them, said... Daughters of Jerusalem, weep not for me. Weep for yourselves, for your children. We don't have recordations of Jesus' laughter, of his jokes, of his mirth. Not to say that he didn't have those things. We just don't have it recorded. But what we definitely can pull from the gospel accounts, all four of them, that Christ was definitely most acquainted with grief. So, do we see the sorrow of our sin? Do we see what our sin did to Christ? Right? I think we often don't fully. And I think there's uh, several reasons why we can't fully embrace the sorrow of our sins that we might mourn. Okay? One... Again, I I don't think you need me to tell you this. I think you'd agree. One is our love for sin. Let's be honest. We are sinners, so we are bound to sin. And we are bound to love that sin. Right? Love for sin makes it very easy for us to let go of other things. Two, I think another thing, another reason that causes us uh, morfulness of our own sin, sorrow to be a blind spot is despair. 
Sometimes we think we've simply sinned too much. Or that the nature of our sins has such gravity that God cannot ever forgive us. Thirdly, it could be our own pride. It could be conceit. I don't need to be forgiven. I don't need to turn from my sin. I'm not that bad. What should I even mourn for about my life? Right? Uh, Self-righteousness. Again, has to be removed. All of the self-somethings have to be removed. Four, presumption. The grace of God can and always just cover my sin. True, true. But if you talk like that, you might never actually experience the grace of God. And uh, a penultimate one here is procrastination, simply just putting it off. Choosing to put it off and, and continue living our lives with sin. As John says, living in sin and not putting our sins under the blood of Jesus Christ. And six, lastly, I think one of the reasons why we can't see it for what it really is, is this idea again, everything's a joke. Frivolity. I just don't care. It's just not that big of a deal. Right? Is that not why the great apostles... And all of their preachings always, uh, they always focus on this uh, sobering view of what life really is like. Not a lot of jokes are made. Because we're talking about your eternal life, but we're also talking about your opportunity to experience the kingdom of heaven now while you live. And friends, that's no joking matter. It's literally a discussion of life versus death. How do we mourn for our sin? Well, we look to the cross. We look to a sinless, spotless Savior Suffering for our sins, that's like Sally selling seashores by the sea, whatever. I didn't realize that it was all there when it came. We must look to a sinless, spotless Savior suffering for sins that are not His own, but ours. Christ dying by choice for you, being made a sacrifice for your sin. And if that doesn't humble you, if that doesn't break you, if that doesn't put us on our face so that we can walk in the presence of God instead of being the dust, I don't know what is. Jesus says if you look to the cross, you can be comforted. If you mourn for your sin, if you let it eat within you, you will be comforted. And what does comfort in this example mean? Forgiven. Our lives will be changed. The Holy Spirit will enter in us. Interestingly, the word for comfort in its root in Greek uh, is the same word 
that we use for the Holy Spirit in Greek, which is a word parakletos, parakletos. And it means to come beside. Imagine arm in arm with somebody. To come beside in support, to comfort. It's the Holy Spirit does. And if we mourn for our sin, the Holy Spirit of God will come beside us, comfort us, taking us to the cross. We'll have forgiveness in the Holy Spirit, we'll have salvation, and this mourning will elevate us. Christian and non-Christian, just like the prodigal, Luke chapter 15 and verse 18, what did he say? He says, when he came to himself, he said, I will arise and go to my father and will say unto him, I have sinned in your sight and I am no more worthy to be called your son. Right? That's this emotional recognition of the true weight of the sins that we've committed. What is it to be comforted? I'd like to close with this. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. Amen? Let me close in prayer. Perhaps there's someone here, oh God, that you know needs to feel mournfulness in their soul about their sins, the emotion of a dying soul within ourselves. I pray that they look to you, be comforted this evening. Lord, we say with the poet Roy Hessen, bend this stiff-necked eye. Help me to bow my head and die, beholding Christ on Calvary who bowed his head for me. Help us to be poor in spirit, but to mourn our spirit. And if we do, we inherit the kingdom of heaven. And we'll be comforted by none other than the Holy Spirit of God and God's blessed fullness in our lives. Bless us now as we part. For Christ's namesake. Amen. And next week we will look at uh, probably one of the ones that most people know. Blessed are the meek. Any questions? All right. Well, thanks, guys. It really is interesting if you stop and think about it just for a second. That some of the very first teachings and preachings that Jesus of Nazareth had to the world about the coming of the good news for humankind didn't sound like good news at all. And it is so incredibly important for us to understand the contrast between the world that Jesus is offering us versus a world that we are enslaved by. But to take advantage of that opportunity, we have to completely turn everything that we think is important as a human upside down. And it doesn't make sense. Every fiber of our being fights against it. That's why it's so important for us through, through our own study, through prayer, through corporate worship, through listening to podcasts like this, that we remind ourselves 
seriousness of the situation. These decisions between the earth and heaven truly are decisions of life or death. Anyway, that's something to think about. Hey friend, I'll see you next week. Until then, be blessed.